Hi, welcome to In the Pacha, where I, Sam Reinstein, Rabbi of Congregation Kol Israel in Brooklyn, have conversations with different educators about the weekly Torah portion. This week for Parsha Shemot, I'm with Miriam Gedweiser. Hey, Miriam. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, so, I mean, we just met, um, so I don't know you too well, um, but I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Sure. Um, so my name is Miriam Gedweiser. I live in Teaneck, New Jersey with my family. Um, I teach Talmud and Tanakh at the Ramaz Upper School on the Upper East Side. Um, I teach also at Drisha, um, or I have been teaching there in the summers the past few years. Um, I'm a, sometimes I call myself a retired lawyer, um, recovering lawyer, non-practicing <laughs> lawyer, as depending on your mood, my mood, I guess. Um, and that's kind of it, I think. Wow. Um, so you kind of, you turned it into like a full year. Um, I mean, because Ramaz and Drisha. Um, oh, yeah, I try and. Institutions. What'd you say? Sorry. Uh, they're, they're obviously big institutions. So that's really cool to have a full year of that. Yeah, no, it's it's awesome. And they're very different. Um, you know, so you get kind of work on different skills, different sort of, uh, different things are enjoyable about each, I would say. Very different populations. Like in Drisha, I'm mostly teaching adults um, or young adults. So So it's good. Thank God. And can I ask about the transition from law to uh, to Jewish studies, or? Sure, you can ask. Yeah. Um, um, like, people like, always like, want to know. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So you know, uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I was. I feel like there's different ways for me to tell this story. Um, yeah. First of all, like it's not a chiddush that people don't like being lawyers. Right. Um, a lot of people. I mean, it's not. It's not a. <laughs> it's not an unusual situation. I guess I'll put it that way. Um, I think that. In my case, there's also, I'm sort of like, there's like a stereotype of a woman who's like interested in learning, but then is like, oh, like there's no career here. There's no obvious path. There's no good degree for me to get. Like, I'm just going to go be a lawyer. Raw. It's sort of like similar skills. It's like reading books, thinking about like technical issues. So like, I'm sure that'll be a good fit. But then like, uh, it wasn't. I mean, it was fine. You know, the truth is like, it, it's a conflation of sort of interest in things. You know, I wanted life circumstances, you know, like I, I left law when I was pregnant with my third kid. I had a job that was ending anyways. I was like, do I really want to go on the job market like this? And like, you know, in terms of like my family situation, my spouse was working also a very demanding job. It just sort of didn't, it didn't really work for us at that time for me to be sort of us to be turning our life upside down for me to have a job that I didn't like and we didn't really need at the time. Um, that's part of it. Part of it was sort of, you know, like, through a variety of circumstances, I ended up working in commercial litigation. I wasn't really doing law that I felt was sort of like meaningful, quote unquote. Right. Um, and I, you know, learning was always sort of my safe place that I came home to. So I sort of came home to it for a little while. It, it's it's it felt, right. the first year I was like, okay, I'll do this for a year, then I'll see. Um, you know, and I'll like, I still keep my bar admission is the truth. But um, right. beyond that, I don't know. We'll see what the future holds, but right. so far it's been a good transition. Interesting. Cause I feel like that's a path a lot of people take when they want to go into to Jewish studies or, or teaching. Um, like they kind of do the high, more high powered or professional thing first and kind of decide when to move over. Um, so far I've been doing the both at the same time. Cause I'm an actuary oh, yeah. during the week um, uh. and a rabbi on the weekends. Um, we'll see how that, how long that goes. So. Do you change in a, like a phone booth? I mean, it's luck, luck, luckily it's you know the business the same outfit the same outfit <laughs> yeah um, I, mean, I think I, I i can't say that it was a plan 
Um, but in retrospect, it seems like it could have been a plan. I don't know. Cool. Um, um, so before before we talk about talk Torah, um, I wanted to just give a quick summary of the parsha. Please. Um, I usually try and do it to thirty seconds, um, but we'll see we'll see what happens this week. Um, so Pharaoh doesn't listen to Moshe to let the Jews leave, and neither do the Jews themselves. Moshe and Aaron go to Paro, and the staff turns into the serpent as a sign, and Pharaoh's magicians do the same, but Moshe's serpent swallows the others. Still, Pharaoh doesn't listen. The first two plagues happen, blood and frogs. Paro promises to let them go, if the plague stop, but he still doesn't. Plagues three through six, lice, wild beasts, and sick animals, and boils. Plague seven is hail. Plague seven is hail. Paro promises to let them leave again if it stops, but he again doesn't let them leave. Um, so there's a, obviously, oh, that's like a, a very overarching thing of what happened here. Um, but I'd be curious to hear um, what you wanted to focus on um, considering um, so I, much sort of stuff. I sort of wanted to open with the very beginning of the Parsha because okay. um, it sounds, well, yeah, like the Parsha starts um, with, not the very, very beginning, but in conversation with the, the end of the previous parsha ends on kind of like a, a dispiriting note, let's say, right? You know, like Moshe has gone to Paro, he's like, let my people go. And Paro's like, actually, no, and I'm going to make you do even more work. And then the Jews are right. sort of mad at Moshe. Um, and it's kind of like, and Hashem is at the end, very end. He says like, well, you'll see, you'll see, I'll take you out. Or I'll, right. I'll take them out. And you're kind of like, well, will we see? Um, and then like this, it's, this pressure opens with this kind of like interesting theological speech by God, um, which actually the first thing I noticed is that, so this part just starts in what we have as the second, the second verse of the sixth paragraph of Shemot, um, meaning like the, the Jewish breaking up doesn't always follow the num numeration, let's say. So you sort of have a double speech of God with nothing in between, right? The very, the previous Pasuk is, right? God said to Moshe, I'm going to just read the, the JPS translation. Yeah. You shall soon see that what I will do to Paro, he shall let them go because of a greater might. Indeed, because of the greater right. And then it says, God spoke to Moshe and said to him. So first thing is sort of like, well, what happened in between there? Right. Um, and then sort of this speech goes on, right? God says, I appeared to Abraham and Isaac using a certain name, and now I'm appearing to you using a different name, which is like interesting to parse for a lot of reasons. Um, and then if we go to Pasuk Yudbet, verse 12, um, so again, God has this whole thing. Moshe tells the, the actually before 12 in verse 9, right? Moshe Cain Elbene Israel. Moshe goes back and tells the people, like, yeah, this is happening. Right? And they didn't listen to Moshe. They would not listen to Moses. Their spirits crushed by cruel bondage is how it's translated by GPS, the 1985 or 87, whatever it is, GPS. Um, right, sort of like a you know, like lack of breath and hard work. Um, and then God says to Moshe, come to Paro, and he's gonna send Benesra out, out. And then we have again this sort of double Vaidaber, so Vaidaber in Pasuk 10, Yud, whatever you want to call it. And again in verse 12, Vaidaber Moshe Lifnesha. Oh, sorry. My mistake. Vaidaber Moshe Lifnesham, hey Bene Israel, Losha Muelai, Ve'echishma'ini Paro, right? Moshe's like, that's really nice, but like Bene Israel won't even listen to me. So how can Paro listen to me? Um, and furthermore, I have a speech impediment. So like, you know, I'm really not the right person for this job in some way. Vaidaber Hashem Moshe, Ve'el Aharon, Ve'etzavim El Bene Israel, right? So, this is a basuk I sort of wanted to focus on. It's not actually what I said before. It's not sort of coming out of, it's not a Vedaber after Vedaber, but Hashem says to Moshe, 
and to Aharon. That seems to be the first response is like, okay, Aharon's going with you, which we already kind of knew, but now he's sort of being included. So like, don't worry about your speech impediment, whatever that is. Um, and he, he commanded them to B'nai Israel and to Paro, the king of Egypt, to take B'nai Israel out of Egypt. Um, and then we have this whole genealogy and then it gets into like the plagues and the signs and stuff that you, you were talking about. Um, I just sort of th- thought that Pasuk was curious um, in sense of like, well, a few things are curious about it. First of all, like the last thing we hear from B'nai Israel is they don't believe him, right? They, they don't even listen or heed or however you want to translate it, it's Shamu, right? They don't heed Moshe, let's say, because they're sort of so dejected. And Moshe's like, B'nai Israel won't even listen to me. Parah's not going to listen to me. Um, and then we have this pasuk that's about B'nai Israel and Paro, which is sort of very strange. There's no content necessarily obvious of like, el B'nai Israel, right? He commanded them to B'nai Israel. Yeah. Some of the translations have it as like regarding B'nai Israel. Right. So I'm actually, um, I have the new Steins also open and it says, oh yeah, commanded them to speak to. Like it has that in, uh, not in, in both, but like. So that's it, super interesting. Right. Because like w- to say what, and in fact, a lot of the the commentaries also sort of see it as gave them sort of made them in charge of B'nai Israel because there is no content to that speech. Um, so the first thing I notice is just like this pasuk is sort of hard to understand. But the next thing I want to say about it, which I think maybe goes together, is like it like starts here, and then like we don't really like we just heard B'nai Israel like oh they're so worn down they they you know they can't even with this whole Moshe thing, and then. Like there's this whole drama between Moshe and Paro and B'nai Israel are like passive throughout that entire thing. Like there's, they don't do anything. Right. They're not even in the room. Right. They're not in the room and sort of like wondering like, well, what were they thinking? What were they doing during that time? Right. Like, because especially because the last time he had gone, it came out really like it was much worse for them. So Right. Meaning we sort of heard them push back against Moshe and now we don't hear them pushing back, but we also don't hear them supporting or anything. They're just sort of watching. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Right. Um, my yeah. So yeah. I looked ahead. I tried to look ahead. Um, yeah. It seems like the next thing that Pan Israel do is, where is it? Significantly later. Um, let me just pull it up. It's basically in Perak. What is it? You bet, Yudalif. Um, you bet, right? Um, it's a few. If you think this is incorrect, you can you can correct me, right? But that's when when sort of the first meets vote, all that kind of stuff, where God is like, okay, now like we're sort of finished with the plagues, or we're about to finish with the plagues. Um, go tell Ben Israel to do all this stuff, right? Take this sheep, you know, eat it in a certain way, be ready to leave. Right. Um, and then they get all these mitzvot. Yeah, right, so they get all these mitzvot and then they do them, sounds like. Um, so I just thought that was like super interesting in the sense of like B'nai Israel is kind of complaining and we mean understandably so, sort of worn out. And then just by observing all of this, they seem to be brought to this place where they could be asked to do things, but their tasks are not like go out of Egypt, right? The task is like do these mitzvot. And then Moshe is the one who sort of like quote unquote brings them out of Egypt. I, I mean... It's, it's, it almost sounds like at the beginning they're all just like very skeptical and like and it would make sense for that to be so right they're so dejected but probably over the plagues as the plagues happen uh, they probably get more confidence and so maybe they're they're like okay um like we're in 
um, at this point. Um, right. I mean, I think, you know, one of the people say this in general, or one of the things about if you look at like you trace the word Israel, it's like, a, I, I don't know if that's a following words can be an interesting methodology. Um, you know, if you're following a common word, you never know how, whatever, but right, like Israel comes up in the plagues in terms of, right, this distinctions between the Egyptians and and the Jews, right? Like this happened to, um, the, you know, the Egyptian wildlife, wild, not wildlife, livestock. Livestock is the word I was looking for, right? But not to the Jewish livestock. Um, or like, you know, the, the plague of the firstborn is the same. So that's kind of interesting. Like, but it, it, again, it sort of reinforces the passivity. Um, and I thought that was also like, especially interesting in contrast to this week's Parsha or this past week's Parsha, let's say, um, in Shmot, where like, it seems like the very beginning of this book is about sort of the, the heroic actions of ordinary Israelites, let's say in some way, right? Like the, like the midwives, Miriam, Yocheved may or may not be the same people. Okay. But, um, right. Like there's something about them sort of like, there's no quote unquote leader. They kind of step in to do stuff, um, to risk themselves for their principles, however you want to say it. Um, and then like once Moshe becomes a leader, it's sort of like the people are kind of, they're just become like invisible in terms of the drama of the story. Uh, because, meaning, it's not even just that they're not doing anything po- negative or positive. They're just, like, passive. Right. right. Like, we don't hear from them at all. Right. We never hear, like, oh, but then they started to believe in Moshe after they saw this sign, for right. example. Right. We see what Paro does over and over again. But we never right. see what, what, how they, like, I, it's, the, yeah, how did they feel after the blood? And how did they feel after the frogs? You know, we right. don't know. Interesting. Right. It's kind of, I mean, it's kind of interesting. So, to bring it back to where I started, if I can, um, yeah. right? This this whole thing of Yitzavim, this this strange pasuk pasuk you'd bet, Yitzavim um, Israel. Some people read it as, and I'm forgetting who exactly those people are, um, right? It can be read as like sort of put them in charge of, um, right? Even Rashi actually says Yitzavim al Bnei Israel, right? Um, he commanded them, meaning regarding them, it sounds like, to lead them sort of uh, with patience or gently and to tolerate them. Um, so it's kind of like, so that, that one way of reading that is sort of like, yeah, like the last thing we heard from B'nai Israel is that they're super annoying. You're still there? Yeah. Um, and like, you know, they don't, sorry, just I lost a video but um right. right like they're they're kind of uh, annoying naysaying i mean understandably but still like you know they, they don't even have energy for this the last thing we heard about them so so god's message to moshe is like well you know sort of part of your job is to deal with them um and you know like deal with them with an understanding of their situation um which also just sort of it, in some ways it made me wonder again right like so there's there is a whole part of this job of moshe interacting with b'nai israel which is completely absent from all these perkim or all these like events until right. we get to the mitzvot. So, meaning like what lead, maybe even what leading them out of Egypt means doesn't mean like the physical act of taking, of making sure they get out, but it's like, it's actually leading them out um, and getting them to a place where they can go out and not right. just, uh, and not just like, you know, picking them up and moving them. Right. Maybe. Right. Interesting. Um, right maybe that's how the, is that it's kind of like that's how that pasta connects like he has to do that for b'nai israel 
right. Well, I thought it was. Tomorrow. Yeah. So right, what Rashi says, which is right with Bnei Israel, he's being asked to sort of like treat them gently, um, to sort of also to actually treat, treat Paro with the respect due to Kings. Right. Um, but like, um, meaning that like sort of like giving them, not like giving them a message for either of these people, entities, whatever, but sort of like a, how do you say Right, like a methodology, an approach, like general advice, right? Like your job now is to sort of like mediate between these two, to sort of like oversee the separation between B'nai Israel and Paro. And here's how you have to approach each side of that equation. Hmm. Um, but it, I just thought it was so interesting that we only see one side. And I actually sort of, I've connected also to another understanding of Aitzavim. For example, Sforno says, but I don't think he's the only one. And this is the old JPS translation is also like this, I think. Maybe he was dating that, right? It's not that he like gave them some content in terms of a command, but he sort of said like, now you're in charge, right? And it's like when you, some, some, somebody I know had to like, they had to leave the bus stop for a minute. My kids walked to whatever, little personal anecdote warning, um, right? My kids were at the bus stop and somebody had to leave their kid and they said, okay, now you're in charge, right? right? It was like that, like, now you're in charge. Um, but right, like, like it's sort of like it, there is no content to it. It's just like now you're in charge, and that sort of right. got me thinking in terms of like the the model of leadership in contrast to the previous chapter, where like nobody's in charge. So like, and Paro is sort of like, okay, you midwives, like I'm going to make you fake in charge, but to do this evil stuff, um, and then, but like there's the, in some ways it seems to me like the point of all the sort of heroes of that story being feminine is that there's no like classic quote unquote leader for the Jews. Um, um, you know, like they don't even have names necessarily like the, well, the Midwest, I guess, do have names. I'll right. take that back. Um, that's, that's how they're able to kind of able to assert themselves is because there's no one else that's been classically told to you to do this. And so they're able right. to assert themselves. Right. But I mean, right. So what's kind of interesting is like, it doesn't necessarily, I was thinking about this in terms of like models of leadership, right? Where as soon as Moshe is like, okay, now Moshe, you're in charge. Now all of a sudden, like we don't hear from B'nai Israel. Um, which on the one hand is like, that's great. Now they have somebody to be sort of their representative. And the other hand is sort of, to me, it felt like from a contemporary perspective, like, well, that's not how things actually work. Right. Right. It's not actually true that like one person is in charge and now no one else has to do anything or can do anything. Right. And I even, that, that can even be dangerous. Like when one person is in charge to do it, everyone else tends to like relax. Right. Know? And just be like, oh no, they're taking care of it. It's fine. Yeah. Right. Interesting, right? I, I've I've actually seen that in in my shul um, frequently, um, where um, you know somebody new steps up and does something and takes care of something, and then kind of everyone else kind of forgets about it, <laughs> and whenever they're not there, like it kind of falls apart. Um, and so something we've been doing now, um, which has been really healthy, um, has taken a little time, but like creating more structure around who's in charge of this and who's in charge of this. Um, and so when you do that, though. Um, I, so I saw both sides of it, both sides of what you're talking about. First, people being like, oh, I guess it's taken care of. Um, at, but once you put somebody in charge of it, then they do such a great job at like, you know, membership or hospitality or, um, you know, programming or whatever it may be. Um, so that's that double-sided sword of, you know, there are people in charge, oh, they'll take care of it. But if they're put in charge, they really do a good job. Right. And I think that's what's so interesting about like, in some ways, what Rashi adds to the text of like, in some ways, the text, if you read it is like, okay, now you're in charge, then like, 
it's okay. Like now it's Moshe's show and Moshe's just going to tell everyone what to do and they're going to do it. Or Mopar is not going to do it, but then he's going to sort of be the, you know, the master puppeteer in some way. Um, but like, if you, if you read it also as sort of like, there's also this other thing going on on the side, which is Moshe has to manage the people in some way. Um, that's really, it's sort of interesting in terms right. of like, you know, like there, he is doing something there in terms of like maybe getting them ready to be able to do things when the time comes for them to oh. do things. Right. And then uh, when they go into like, eventually when they go into Israel, like they can kind of like have less almost structured leadership and that can be a good thing kind of thing. Maybe. Um, yeah. Right. But actually it just, just occurred to me, right. But like the, the first mitzvah, which is the Korban Pesach, right. The Korban Pesach is a decentralized mitzvah and it stays that way even in Eretz Yisrael to some degree, right? It's not like, like everybody brings for their family and eats it with their family. You have to go to Israel, whatever, but like, or to Jerusalem, but like, it's not, um, it's just like a little, you know, the focus is on sort of like you and your small group of people, like the, the right, your area of influence. Of, instead of it happening in the temple, it's like, no, it's everyone's house. Right. Uh, it's, yeah. Um, and even like all the way at the beginning when they get like the, you know, like do a new moon month. Like right. it is like the, the wording is clear. Like it's lachem, like for you in the plural. It's not, uh, it's not like for Moshe. Right. <laughs> Even though it's being told for Moshe, um, but it's really for everyone. And that's kind of right. the point, I feel like. Right. I mean, that's kind of interesting. Also, I, I neglected the Chodesh before, but right. Like the, there's, you know, a lot of Torah about that, about sort of the, the, calendar as being something that's under the Jewish people's control. Right. Um, and that like that sort of that mitzvah of sort of being given that responsibility maybe is a way of sort of, it's very interesting as the first thing to sort of break you out of Egypt. Um, but yeah. Right. So on this continuum, how do you think we're doing as a, I know this is a big question, but how do you think we're doing as a Jewish community? I, you know, I think it's really interesting because I think that like, um, I think we do sometimes observe I, you know, I've observed, I, I moved around a lot before I moved to Teaneck. I say, yeah. oh, like, oh, I'm from Teaneck, that's the end of the story. I mean, I lived in like, I don't know, five different apartments before we moved here since being an adult, probably more since I left my home. I think I went kind of like 10 different places in like, you know, 12 years wow. or something, or 15, okay. I don't know. So, I mean, not all in different cities, but like, you know, I've, I've, I've been part of different communities, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, different school communities, different, you know, university-based communities. And like, I've seen sometimes it works really well. There's like a really healthy symbiotic type relationship between, you know, let's say a quote unquote official leadership and lay leadership or, and sort of even individuals who feel inspired to do stuff and everybody kind of takes part. Um, sometimes there's like, it's not healthy. And I think in some ways, like the larger level of organizing you get, or like the more quote unquote important, the person who's at the top is or feels like the harder it is to balance to, you know, to remember that like actually you rely or you need also to have like people doing things um, concurrently. You can't just like wave your hands and things happen. Take care of right. You, or you can't just rely on them to do exactly what you say. Right. right. Like you have to be sort of managing them in some way. And part of managing them is taking their feedback. And that's not, you, you, I don't see so much in this part. It's the truth. Right. Like, but. Um, right. I mean, that happens not, eventually, much. but much later, like. Right. Not, not yet. It happens after they leave, you know. All right. Stuff. Um, interesting. Right. But I mean, like you know, like what happens to like the midwife type characters once Moshe takes over? Right. Um, 
one imagines maybe they're still kind of doing their same thing. And maybe part of what, like, according to Rashi, Moshe is told is like, well, you know, like, don't be so hard on the people, sort of be aware that there are people in, like, you know, make use of those resources that they have already shown that they have. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah how I think that this is, I mean, I, to me, this is like a huge question in terms of like, um, with a lot of contemporary salience, both inside and outside the Jewish community, in terms of like, how do we relate to centralized authority, top-down authority versus collaborative approaches to solving problems? What's the role of lay people in making change? Like, yeah, I don't know. Right. Huh. Um, that's a lot to think about. <laughs> um, is it okay if I, I transition over? Sure. Yeah, so, um, because I don't, I, we're definitely not going to be able to answer that question. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I think whatever. Yeah. Um, so something that I've always thought about is just like what, what the point of the plagues are. Um, yeah. Like the whole Parsha is like, has no purpose almost, <laughs> at least on its face to the main part of the story, because like plagues happen, Paro says no, uh, Paro another plague happens, Paro says, okay, I'll send them out. Then it stops the plagues. And he's like, no, I won't send them out. Like, so like, if you just took the Parsha out, like the plot is the same, um, you know, there are plagues and eventually Paro says you can leave. Um, right. Like this is like all the middle part um, where nothing like that's integral to the story happens, um, at least on its face. Um, so kind of like, because you know, really what could have happened is you could have gone straight to the firstborn um, plague. And then all of a sudden he says, okay, no, you can leave. And then it's over. <laughs> There's no, yeah. Yeah. Like what's the point of the hail, you know, because at, at some point, like nothing happens. Um, so I, I saw, uh, well, any thoughts on that before I, um, my thought is that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> the sense right. of like, yeah. Like, I think um, it's, it, you know, there are stated purposes of the plague, right? Like Paro will know, Paro will, is, Egypt will know. It seems like an implicit purpose of the plague is also sort of like a process of differentiating the Israelites from the Egyptians. Oh, um, right. But even yeah. that is sort of like, it's not obvious how this is like the clearest or cleanest way to do that. Right. Like, you mean like just where some of the plague, where all the plagues only happen to the, to the Egyptians. Right. And so that's a clear indication. This is my people. I'm taking care of them. Right. In some ways, that message is as much for the Jews as for the Egyptians, I would say. Right. right. Interesting. Or I don't know. Um, maybe I could see the yeah. other way. And maybe that, that actually fits with what you were talking about before. Meaning like mm -hmm. that's how God does this piece of like saying like, I'm taking care of you. Um, you know, how right. they know they're being taken care of is, you know, them, this happening. Um, and without the plagues, they might have, they might have not gone. They might have said, maybe right, like, don't want to leave. Meaning, like, it would be like, first God comes, and then we have to do, get straw for our ricks, and now God comes, and like, what's he going to kill us all too? Right, like, right. Huh. Like they're not, you know, they're prepared in some ways for a distinction in Makapacho Road and the plague of the firstborn because they've experienced that before. Interesting. But, so the the Barbanel, which is a Portuguese uh, early commentary in the 15th century, um, kind of argues that it's for Paro, but I wonder, based on what we're saying now, that maybe it's for Ben Israel too. Um, but the idea is that um, Moshe and God wanted Moshe to teach Paro three main things. Mm -hmm. um, first, that um, because Paro says, I know not God. Um, 
So he wanted to teach first that God is in control. Um, two, he asked, like, who is, who is this person? Who is God? Um, so he wanted to teach, um, like, that God matters and is part of the world. And then third, Paro denies him um, that who is this Lord that I must obey him, that, um, that God is in control of, like, reward, like, that God is in control of the, like, the physical world. So it was, like, that God exists, um, that God is the God of history, and that three, that God is the God of nature. Um, and kind of what he argues is that each of the plagues are, like, split up into that in, like, the classic Haggadah thing. Like the first three, the second three of last four. Right. Um, that the first three are trying to teach that God is the creator. Um, the next three is that God is the God of history. And the f- last four is that God is the, in control of nature. Um, I do feel on some level that it's a little forced. Um, but I think that's an interesting idea that, um, that the purpose is to almost teach Paro lessons um, and isn't even to take the Jews out. Right. Um, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting because it's like, it's like a lesson, but like, like from a pedagogical perspective, is that how, I, I don't know. I find it sort of curious, I guess I'll say, right. Right. Um, right, like, I is that how you it. teach people by just like, right? The beatings will continue until morale improves kind of like, is that really about improving morale, obviously, but um, like, like, it just feels sort of like, the point doesn't seem to be to like really effectuate a change in Paro's inner, like, it's to prove something to Paro, but like it doesn't really matter if it's if he gives it over begrudgingly. Oh, interesting! It's, like, it's to teach it to him, but like in quotes, meaning like it's like to force it upon him almost. Right, like you know, I, I when I was reading the Parsha, I come, kept coming back to this like saying people always say in high schools. Like maybe this is like the high school teacher, right? You have to give respect to get respect. I don't actually say that in high school, but like the right. idea is true, which is right. You can't force anyone to respect you. Right. Um, you can force people to like be afraid of you or take you seriously, but you can't. I mean. I don't know. I guess it depends on how you're going to define respect, but like, there's a certain kind of like, there's a certain kind of affect that you can't is sort of like impossible to achieve by coercion. Um, right. But God's trying, trying at least seemingly. So maybe it seems like that maybe is not what God is going for. Right. If it's using coercion. Um, but, but then it's sort of like, well, what exactly is God going for? Is God just going for like an intellectual recognition? Like, you know, you're right. I gotta, I gotta say, it. you know, I can no longer say who's God. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I do wonder, I wonder with all the, uh, the Midrashim about like how Paro becomes like in, in the Yonah story where he goes to tell, tell them to repent and they repent instantly. And so the Midrash tries to argue that that repenter is Paro. Like, I wonder if maybe like that's getting at this point is that Paro in this story doesn't really get it. Um, but he like when he's asked in like a like kind of in a very different way in like a much nicer way in a much more um, like not as coerced way um, then he's able to get it later on um, that you can like form a basis for a recognition even if like that you know in subsequent iterations it may it may sort it of may become more full or authentic or whatever you want to call it. That is very interesting. Right. Because I, I do wonder, I'm thinking that, because I, I have a two-year-old. Uh, and, um, you know, with a two-year-old, you kind of can't, like, talk things through all the time. Oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> um, sometimes. Like, he's actually pretty good. But, uh, but you know, obviously, you can't talk things through. Yeah. 
realities of toddlerhood. Um, so, but over time, you do see it. Um, you might not, like, you know, you say, um, you know, you only had, like, he always gets a lollipop at Joel, and that's very exciting, um, but he can only get one, right? And so the first couple of times, he wanted a second one, and, like, it was like, no, and there was a crying, and, you know, but, like, over time, he stops asking for it. Like, I wonder if it's that type of thing. We're like, right. sure, it's coerced at the beginning, and that first time, um, he's, like, you know, crying on the floor about it. Um, but the third time, it's like, oh, no, okay. Uh, I mean, I don't know how intellectually much he understands about it. But regardless. No, you're creating, like, a habit. A habit, right. So I wonder I wonder if that's why, maybe that's why there need to be so many. Um, that's kind of interesting. Three of each. I mean, it's also, right, like, does Paro even survive this whole situation? Right. Unclear, I guess, in the Sukim. But I mean, the other thing I would say on that is it's not, the audience is not only Paro, not even only Egypt, it seems. If the audience is like all of the surrounding nations and everyone they're going to pass through on their way. Right. Right. Cause they all hear about it and they know about it. Right. So it's them learning about this too. Right. Uh, I mean, like even Yitro comes, he says like, I heard what God did for you. That's also like the splitting right. of the sea, other things, but there's something like there, there's like a greater, there's, there's something greater than just like this. How do we get power to let the Jews go? That's happening here. Right. Um, I, I mean, even I think the the audience is much bigger, right? The audience is like us, also. Yeah. Um, I wonder if, on some level, it's a way for God to show us this being the case, and it's like a it's like doing it in a story form where it's like saving you, and so that uh, is something you can remember and, and make it easy to remember it um, and internalize it. I guess. That's interesting. It's not a great bedtime story, but. Well, you know, I think also our sensibilities around these things have changed. Right, that's true. Fair. For better or for worse, I'm not saying. Yeah. But like, you right. know, some some people tell bedtime stories. Whatever. Look at the Grimm stories. Right, fair. <laughs> but we, t- we tell the, like, the Disney-ified versions of that. Yeah. And they all live happily. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think that that's... Right, that's interesting in terms of like us being... And whatever, maybe I'll bring that back to the way when I started with, right? like what's going on with B'nai Israel here is like they're they they are passive and they're absent from the story in some way but like we're we're supposed to assume and understand that they're paying attention um to what's going on huh. right right so that and therefore that this is for them to learn these three things just as much as it is for paro i mean right. now focuses on paro but maybe maybe not maybe we can expand it yeah, I mean, like, it's framed as, like, this whole sort of grand drama with God and power, emotion, power, however you want to frame it. But, like, yeah, I think that, like, we can also sort of ask to what extent, you know, part of the audience is B'nai Israel then and now, right? Like, to what extent are they, what are they, what are they supposed to take from it and taking from it? Right. Um, any last thoughts about either of these things? Or, or um I, I don't know. I'm tempted to try and make like some like grand profound pronouncement. Like, you know, it's so interesting how in this like central story of the Jewish people where we're like, it's like this like foundational narrative. And yet like, there's so like if you go back and look at it, there's so many sort of things that like, we don't, we can't actually really explain so well or sort of like are missing or like, you know, require further thought. Um, I do think that's interesting, but I don't know if that's like a concluding thought or not. Sure. That's great. Um, but thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Um, this yeah, was uh, this is really fun. And me too. Um, um, you can 
Um, you can, sorry. Um, so yeah, thanks for coming on. And for those listening, uh, pay attention for the next episodes of In the Pod Show. Great. Thank you so much.